2: Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 441. This episode is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock, you're going to find the perfect video for your next creative project. You can choose from over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, 3D motion graphics, and a variety of digital formats. Most of them come in HD. That's high definition, Katie. Thanks. (laughs) That means... That means high def. (laughs) You know, sometimes I'll say high definition, sometimes Mm -hmm. I'll say HD, sometimes I'll say high def, yeah. Sometimes I'll say high D, sometimes I'll say definition, (laughs) just to mix it up a little bit. They add 10,000 video clips each week, so every time you visit, you're gonna find something new. They're gonna give you the assets that you need to bring your creative projects to the next level, and they're gonna make it super easy. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. You don't need a credit card; just start an account. Start using it, imagine what your next project's going to be like, save your video selections you find in your clip box, and then when you decide, use the offer code NERDIST11, it changes every time, it changes, so now it's NERDIST11, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package at Shutterstock.com for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code NERDIST11. I'm going to be doing some stand up on the road in December uh, 6th, 7th, and 13th. I'll be in Minneapolis, Chicago, and Seattle. So go to nerdist.com slash calendar for info on With
1: me, Matt Myra. <laughs> oh, Matt. <that's-> <laughs> <laughs> Matt's not even here to defend himself. I know. The worst part about it was like, I was like, what would be if like I were to be the guy that tried to do a Matt impression to be mean, but then did a really bad job at it? 10 seconds
2: before you did it, you made this face like you were trying to fart. (laughs) You just made this face where you're like, what's he doing? And then all of a sudden, Matt Myrond. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and it wasn't like, it's not, the, the joke that I did isn't to make fun of Matt Meyer. It was to make fun of a guy trying to just be mean for uh, no reason. Oh, poor little rhubarb. <laughs> no, it's, no, that you're you're taking it the wrong way. It was about a guy. <laughs> well, he's going to be taking it the wrong way. No, I'll tell him about it. I tell everything to his stupid face. <laughs> I know, I, I just, I like the idea that a guy, like, you know, that just is mean when the person's not around. I just, never
2: mind. Well, I just love, it I love that way. this that this semi-hostful intro has been controversial because this episode is Oliver Stone. And I was very nervous about the Oliver Stone episode because um, he's a guy that is essentially a, a, a machine of names and dates and events. And, uh, and I, I have, you know, I have no, I'm not a historian, so I have no recourse to be like, no that was not in fact the Warren Commission, you know like mm-hmm. and so I was very nervous because I would imagine that he probably expect this one was i feel like much more of an uh interviewee mm-hmm. normally these 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 podcasts are more like you know uh conversations and oh like you know it's like a phone conversation yeah. and um uh but uh but this I felt like was more interviewee because he you know he had a lot to say that the uh, the Untold History of the United States is the documentary, this twelve part documentary series that he did that he did. That's on uh, Showtime and it's on Amazon and and iTunes. And then the the JFK fifty year commemorative uh, commemorating the fifty years since the assassination. The the ultimate Blu-ray edition of JFK is out too, and it's actually it's really cool. It, they sent me one. I gave it to Matt Myra because he dro- he like I saw drool uh. like when he was like, "How oh, did you get one of those collector's editions?" I'm like, "Here you go." Uh, uh, but it's go. got a lot of cool extra extra stuff in it. So. Um, this was a very interesting podcast for me because um, I tend to stay away from politics on the podcast because I sort of feel like, A, I'm, you know, I'm not a historian and I'm not a uh, I'm not a hardcore political uh, comedian at all. I'm not even a softcore political comedian. But, you know, I like everything on the podcast to sort of feel uplifting and I like the podcast to sort of. You know make people feel unified, and I feel like <laughs> politics divides people so this was an interesting podcast for me because I think you'll find that I'm not editorializing on anything I'm essentially just asking questions and listening so uh, this was uh, this was relatively relatively unique in that way whether you agree with everything the guy says or not like he definitely he's a smart guy yeah, and he great he definitely does did you watch the whole series I've watched uh, three
1: of the episodes yeah of uh, yeah untold history I've seen them all. it's great yeah. yeah. Starting to feel bad that oh, we're to misconstrue the joke I did earlier. I, I think we
2: should just cut it out. <laughs> no, I'm going to leave it in. No, no, I played into it too. So there was a second shooter. There was.
0: Hey! Now entering nerdist.com.
2: Oliver Stone, thank you for being here on the podcast Nice to see you, Chris I wasn't sure I would ever say those words out loud Oliver Stone, thank you for being on the podcast
0: I don't know what I'm on, but I'll pay attention as I go It's like a digital radio wonderland That sounds good
2: (laughs) And I said before, I actually made notes And I never make notes for people
0: it indicates an organizing principle behind your society.
2: There is a little bit of an organizing principle. I haven't figured out what that is yet, or what my motivations are. Well, but well, I just don't want to look like one. a I don't want to look like a fucking idiot. You to know you. what
0: the organizing principle of our society is? <laughs> what American is that? society is war.
2: I guess that is that is a huge part of it. I, there is no war here. You and I are in peace. No, time. we
0: are we are different kinds of people. We exist as fringe people inside this state of yes. warfare.
2: Yes. Yeah. So we're we're those types of cogs. And what are you trying to say, Monica? Come in. You're holding up a note in the window. I can't see that no, far de- away. No
0: decaf, Monica? Oh,
2: Kyle has a decaf. Oh. <laughs> uh, what, are you looking, what do you need?
0: Oh, no, no. no okay. I you, I to you
2: need kitty? Make sure Kyle is getting uh, Mr. Stone's decaf coffee. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sure, Monica. Thanks, Thanks mom. And then come
0: in here with... Please sit down. She should join the conversation. She
2: really should, actually, because she's actually uh, a Marine Reserve. She's a Marine Reserve.
0: Terrific. I like
2: her And already. so, happy Veterans Day to you. Thank you very much. Thank it's you for your service you to our country. Thank you. Um, I th- I'm sure a lot of people know, but you received the Bronze Star and the Purple Heart um, Thank you. for your service in, in Vietnam. Yeah.
0: And uh, I have to say, uh, yeah. Yeah. That uh, it's led me onto on to many fields of thought.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know if people know that um, you you entered, you spent, what, a year at Yale? You went to Yale for a year, and then you dropped out to go teach school in, in South Vietnam.
0: More or less, yes. I went. Uh, yes, that's true. I went to Yale for that first freshman year. And uh, went to, uh, dropped out, uh, stayed in Vietnam for the uh, whole year, practically, and taught in school and uh, and taught English mathematics history to uh, high school students in Cholan. And then joined the Merchant Marine. I became a wiper because you could join the Merchant Marine. It was a unionized activity, but you could join it abroad and and replace a seaman that was missing in action somewhere out there. So I, I sailed around, and uh, and then I eventually came back to the States. It was an extraordinary voyage, northern Pacific, and Jan- and, you know, northern Pacific in winter. It was amazing. Back to Oregon, Coos Bay, Oregon, from uh, Saigon.
2: So, uh, what, I mean, obviously— Almost died on that trip. Oh, you did?
0: What happened? Well, the ship was coming back light. All the ships used to go over to Vietnam were taking he- heavy, uh, heavy uh, goods to uh, Vietnam. Arms, uh, food supplies— uh, px television sets cars we were building up vegas in uh, in vietnam and they would all come back light a lot of them would come back with nothing so we had no ballast in the ship and we hit the storms of the uh, northern pacific which are extraordinary by the way something to be seen to be believed and i remember the 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 ship was an old liberty which was pitching like 44 degrees one night we went over 44 degrees a 45 degree tilt is about it you go over we almost capsized and all the dishes were broken i'll never forget the fear of that night and seeing the water coming through my porthole practically
2: and but you are you the type of person that is the next day you're like,
0: oh, we got through that? Oh, no, that- no, 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 no. This For me, this was like a Lord Jim kind of experience because all these guys in the merchant Marine were rugged guys, veterans, but strange people. They all had strange lives and had been in Africa and the romance run in, in Latin America. They had wives in, in the States, many of them, but they never seemed to have lasting marriages or families. They were, oh, there was a call of the sea. You always you, you bitched about the sea, but, you know, and you, but you'd always come back eventually. You always... That they always had that law that you return to the sea. So many of them you know, were lonely men in a sense, but always interesting to talk to, eccentric stories. Some the of them was, told me they were CIA agents in Korea. They had amazing... And you know, half of it's true, probably. Half of it was true. <laughs> I was at the Kennedy assassination, for all I know. <laughs> and you don't know if they're telling it, yeah. Yeah, sometimes they were that way. You know, I'm saying with the sea, you never know if the tales are quite true.
2: Does the sea forgive all? Like, do people, is it a good place for people to go to escape uh, what's going on land? Well, it's a place
0: where people with problems go to. You know, you realize that it's not a stable existence. Now they have container ships, of course, and they they use mostly foreign crews, but uh, it was an amazing experience as a young man to go through that. I love the ocean. I love sailing. uh, And I was a wiper, which is the lowest job on the ship. I mean, I had to clean all the engine room, all the toilets. It was a rough job, too, because I had boiling oil fall on me through part of the parts that I had to blow this blow the tubes I don't know anyone in your audience is going they're young people they're not going to know what that means blowing the tubes is when you blow when you you, you have to clean out the boiler every day yeah a lot
2: a of day. my generation doesn't know how to do things with their hands <laughs> <laughs> if there is an apocalypse a lot of us are completely fucked because we know how to work computers um but uh well now it's computerized now now it's all computerized yeah but so uh, What did it feel like, like the political climate at the time? And then, where essentially so much of society was clashing with what was going on politically, did you feel particularly charged by the energy? And is that is that why you wanted to go teach in South Vietnam, or what was it that what what did you feel at the time?
0: All I knew is what I didn't like. I knew that I did not belong with the Yale crowd. Uh, I'd gone there from from boarding school, and I was in George Bush's class at Yale. He was a class of '68. And uh, I just knew I didn't belong, I didn't fit, right, fit in. So I had to find my way in the world, and I, I'd read a lot of uh, Conrad and Hemingway and stuff like that, and I believed in, I guess, the male, the male thing about finding yourself, proving yourself. So I went out there to, to do that, and uh, I came back, and I went back to Yale for half a semester. I wrote a book, for, and I dropped out again. I was writing a book about my adventures, which became... A Child's Night Dream, which was published in 1995 eventually by uh, St. Martin's Press. It's good. It's in, the, in there, there's an interesting chapter on the Merchant Marine. But uh, basically, I went back to Yale and dropped out again and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then when that book was rejected in 19, early sixty-seven, I went back into the—I uh, volunteered for the draft, and I went back to Vietnam because I, didn't, I think I had to get one step further and go to the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, and see if I would come out alive on the other side. So I wanted to see war. And I I got my fill of it. I arrived in September of '67 after Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and I was in the infantry for 15 months.
2: Did you? Was your desire to see war as a soldier, or to see yeah. war as an artist as well, to see what it? I guess I had an artistic
0: temperament. Yes, I guess I had an artistic temperament, and I wanted to see, experience war. I had been influenced, as I said, by Hemingway's, for whom the bell tolls, by uh, you know, and I and you get these images, and you they they become locked in your brain, and you want to. I guess every young man, to a certain degree, whether it's football or sports, wants to prove that he's a man, you know. I can't say what happened over there. It was uh, I never—I came back from the war very dis- alienated, very uh, numbed out, drugged out, too. And uh, I, it took me a while to get back into society. It took me about a year to fit in, to start to get socialized, to talk to people in a normal way again. I just didn't have that— that capacity and uh, i ended up thank god at nyu film school under the gi bill and i was able to put my integrate my life back together with, through uh, making short films i mean it was stumbling at first i finally found my way and after film school i graduated to be a cab driver a messenger various jobs uh, all kinds of work in new york city uh typing pools god almighty i was an assist- assistant on a porno film everything anything to work and I wrote scripts all the time. I kept writing scripts. And eventually I got lucky. And uh, 1979, I was a bit breakthrough year with Midnight Express. Mm-hmm. And, Al Parker. Uh, I went from uh, zero to, to the to the heights right away. I won an Academy Award. That's not very good for you because you're not used to it. And um, then I went down again and up again and down again. It's My career has been up and down ever since.
2: <laughs> Do you feel like that uh, anything you learned in the military or any of the time you spent overseas – did it teach you any values? Did it teach you any skill sets that you were able to sort of transform? As use? a
0: GI know, uh, you don't have any skill sets except uh, how to how to handle yourself in combat, which is a rare experience on the domestic front. But uh, I think you do have a sense of uh, an experience, a uh, discipline, a sense of a, a group. How, and you see the world perhaps more clearly because combat and infantry and the war itself, the military, is a huge machine, and it, it grinds up men. It grinds up money, and there's a tremendous amount of waste in war. I hope, I hope you realize how much there is, and things get done that are very cruel and unusual, and I, I think because of that experience, I'm able to see things in government life. That are excessive and cruel and unusual and uh, unnecessary. And whenever we go back to wars, I think I'm able to see through the talk because it's always the chickenhawks, the, the the backdoor patriots. You know, the guys who are always out there on Memorial Day, you know, yelling about how great this country is. Who are the worst uh, people who say this is the greatest country in, in the world? They, you know, they're not paying attention, and they, you see it everywhere in this country now. You see more and more false patriotism. It's disgusting to me. I think it's the last refuge of scoundrels, as they used to say.
2: So what is what is what do you believe true patriotism is?
0: Love of country. Love of country. That is to make your country a better place, to try to help it. To When you see things that are wrong, to criticize and to try to fix them. Not to pave them over with more money and more sugar like they used to do in the military.
2: Well, I think um, I watched... Uh Part of your series, The Untold History of the United States, I watch... Katie, go see where Kyle is. Yeah, there's a coffee... You said
0: this is a, coffee. And then, and then this is a coffee clutch, and you don't have any yeah, coffee, <laughs> you know.
2: <laughs> Kyle <laughs> has a beard. Grab him by the beard and yank cheapo, him down and punch him in the face. Cheapos you are.
0: Yeah, no, seriously. This is bullshit. Anyway, we're talking... Oh, here he is. Kyle's here. We haven't talked about my movies, oh, goddamn. We're going to talk about your movies. We're going to talk about all the We're wasting this time this about... Make. We're wasting time talking about the man. Yeah, we're going to
2: Behind gonna ta- the movies.
0: Well... Are oh, you the other guy here? No, Kyle's. Hey,
2: Kyle's man. just taking notes. Kyle's taking Are notes. You another uh,
0: provocateur? I am. <laughs> Good. Kyle looks like a muppet.
2: Uh, he's got the. He's got the. Oh, can you get bro- Monica in here? I want. I
0: want to talk oh, to you about military. Yeah, yeah. In. She could. Yeah. Um, so, uh, make it fun.
2: I watched. The, I watched the JFK episode of the uh, Untold History. Good. And what I found to be interesting was oh, seeing. Uh, your portrayal in the documentary of Khrushchev and uh, Kennedy as something that I hadn't really seen before, though admittedly I have not watched every documentary, but the idea that when they were faced with war that they both changed and went, wait a minute, maybe this is a bad idea. Monica, Monica I, think he, I think he wants you to come sit over here. Oh, and... oh
1: my goodness. No, I just wanted
2: to listen in. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't want to... I told him you were in the Marines.
0: Yeah, I, he so, got my respect. And so he wanted to... Uh, he wanted to. Really? You made the Korean Marines? You survived? No, she's in the uh, American Marines. No, sir. I was...
2: oh, oh, She's okay. Korean, but she's in the American <laughs> Korean Marines <laughs> are much tougher.
1: They're, they're pretty intense. I yeah. got to train with a couple of them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, twice a year, Monica has to go overseas, and and she disappears for like a month. Oh, really? she's still in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She still has to go. How many times do you go twice a year?
1: Uh, it's Twice a year, or I lump it all into one. Um, it's just, it's a, a particular reserve. Right. Mm-hmm. So I go to Korea. Well,
0: the Korean soldiers are always the roughest in Vietnam. They were hated by the uh, Vietnamese because they messed with them quite a bit. Really? Yeah, they're very cruel. But uh, we're going back to Khrushchev and Kennedy for a moment. Uh, it was an extraordinary moment, the uh, nuclear crisis of uh, October 62. The world was really at the edge. Because we didn't know the uh, that the Russians had 40,000 tough troops there, led by the commander of Salengra, the, the commander of that fought that great battle in World War II. They had a hundred nuclear we- battlefield weapons. That is what we didn't know. The Cubans had more men than we thought they did. They were 250,000 well-armed men and they had different styles of missiles than we even knew of. We knew part of what they had. So we would have gone in there thinking we were going to take 20,000 casualties. But McNamara, years later, when he found out what the Russians really had, said we would have taken 100,000 casualties. And it would have been like, with the, with the paranoia of those times, and the Joint Chiefs wanted a war with the Soviets because they knew that they could lick the Soviets. We had a, almost a 10 to 1 uh, parity. We were much stronger than the Soviets at that time. They knew that we could take out the Soviet Union in 1960 and get away with it without significant retaliation. That was the basis of the movie that uh, Strangelove, uh, that Kubrick did. You know, they talk about what the retaliation factors would be. How many people do you lose? And the Joint Chiefs were saying, you know, if we wait, the Soviets are going to build up and they're going to achieve parity, which they did by the 1970s. Almost parity. Reagan then made it worse than it was. He talked about another big gap. And he got into office in 1980 on that basis. But really, there was a significant moment in our history when we were ready for war again. We'd waited since 1945, remember? We dropped two two atomic bombs on Japan. We didn't need to. We did it. It was a very barbaric act. We can go back and talk about that. But we had, we ready to use nukes. We built up with with Eisenhower to thirty thousand nuclear weapons. Thirty thousand nuclear weapons. We don't even have, we have about seven thousand now. We had thirty thousand. When you build that kind of machinery, you want to go. You know, it's like you build a bomb. You want to drop it. You want to see if it works. You know. So I'm saying there was a tremendous kind of feeling in the air by 1960 that we were going to have crises after crises with the Soviet Union, whether it was uh, Formosa, whether it was Suez, uh, or whether it was going to be Berlin again, because Berlin had been a significant crisis point. By 1962, this with Cuba, 90 miles off our shores, we hit that point. We're ready to go. That's what Kennedy was facing. The hardliners wanted him to, to drop those weapons, wanted to invade and and fight. And we were on the edge on Trigger. trigger we were on DEFCON 2 for about... 20 days or whatever it was, DEFCON 2, which was not declared by Kennedy. It was declared by the Air Force general who did it on his own because under Eisenhower's policy, commanders had the right to go to to nuclear postures uh, on their own accord. So there was a guy named Thomas Power who was in charge of the Air Force. He went to DEFCON 2. And we almost had, a you know, near accidents, uh, there was a n- nuclear submarine, a Russian nuclear submarine, we went yes, into that one.
2: Yes, that, that I did not know about. That I did not know about. I wrote the guy's <laughs> name down. Uh, Vasily Arkhipov?
0: Yeah, Arkhipov. Yeah, it's a great character, but uh, and it's a great story. It's a great story. He stopped this thing. The, the Russian commander was ready to fire because he had been depth charged, and he, he was outside the quarantine line, and he assumed that the war had broken out. And uh, he said we, we, they knew they were they were they were basically fucked. They were going to die. So he said, let's at least go out with some you know with, and fire off. And she so would have fired, and uh, then it would have been one thing after the other. Also, there was another near miss with a, a U two a got shot down right over uh, Cuba again, taking photographs. So the they went crazy on that one. We had on Okinawa where we had nuclear uh, bombers. We were ready to go with the H-bomb against China, because we were going to make it not only Russia, we were going to make it China, too. This thing was very serious. Kennedy was scared. And at the last second, I mean, he knew, and Khrushchev knew, they started to communicate. But they didn't have a red phone in those days. You know, they, they, could, they couldn't talk to each other. So they had to go through to go-betweens, the go-betweens are crucial. Kennedy knew that he could not control this situation that much longer that the hardliners would, would 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 win in the end that there would be some outbreak that they couldn't stop. Khrushchev knew the same thing. Khrushchev withdrew the missiles there was a you know, they made a deal and basically from that moment on uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy began to thaw and by 1963 a year later they're signing the uh, the limited test ban treaty uh-huh. which is very interesting because that's the first nuclear test ban treaty we ever have in the nuclear age from 1945 on. It's a significant moment. Plus, there's a lot of other things that go on. You know, an opening to Cuba. Kennedy puts out an order not to withdraw uh, to withdraw the first thousand troops from from Vietnam. By the way, Kennedy's never put combat advisors into Vietnam, although the the, the uh, Pentagon wants combat advisors. They they want you know Vietnam is the next target. If they can't win in Cuba, goddammit, it, they're going to make a point. They both. Uh, the, it's a, it's a very interesting story because it's about militarism and American militarism and how it continues on after Vietnam, which is a disaster for us. We go on right after Vietnam, and by the way, we don't stop. We start building up again right after Vietnam.
2: Now, was it, uh, it was kind of interesting that you know in the in the portrayal in the documentary that these these two world leaders essentially, like you said, thawed, and they kind of realized, like, oh, the entire planet's going to go up in flames if we don't back off a little bit and, and at the same time risking looking weak as leaders for not going in and essentially obliterating each
0: That's other. That's always a big thing, isn't it? Khrushchev wrote that famous letter to Kennedy, good can come out of this evil. It's a beautiful letter. You should read it. It's in the chapter and it's in the book too. But uh, Khrushchev had been through uh, Stalingrad he'd been a political commissar there he'd seen the nature of war he saw how bad it was the Soviet Union was devastated by the war they both were mature men Kennedy had been in World War II he'd been a PT hero PT 109 type hero he saved a man drowning he saved men drowning he'd he, was a, he had a backbone. He wasn't like Obama. You know, he was a guy who could stand up to the military. He thought the generals were stupid. He, and after the Bay of Pigs, he fired Dulles, the head of the CIA, and he made comments about the Joint Chiefs that these people were really from the Stone Age. You know, He had people like Curtis LeMay uh, on his Air Force Chief of Staff, Arlie Burke, uh, Lemnitzer. These people were not the brightest people. They were geared for war. They were World War II people who were arrogant, and they thought that they could take the Soviets. And they probably could have at that point. But it would have been a disaster for us. The world would have probably never – it wouldn't be the world we know today. How do you know when you're – Maybe the right-wingers in America would like it this way. But (laughs) I don't think you and I would be sitting here quite so civilized. How do you know when you're making a 10-part
2: documentary series? this 12-part documentary series, The Untold History of the United States. How do you know – how do you – how do you get to as much of what you believe the truth to be as possible? How do you find out when you have, you know, decades of of, of stories and hearsay? And how, how do you get to the nature of what you believe to be true? That's
0: what age is about. That's, that's the only thing I can recommend about <laughs> getting older is you get wiser. I've been through so much of the tyranny of now, the details of the news, and all the crises that come and go. I've been reading the newspapers since the 1950s. And over time, I think you get a little bit, more sagacious about things about every crisis is not the crisis it 's perceived. all the events that happen on a daily basis are, there's no, where is the pattern? what is going on underneath this don 't buy all the the news that you hear all the time, and i haven 't but you know in two thousand and eight, after two terms of George Bush, which was a nightmare for me as a veteran, because we were back in Iraq fighting a war that was unnecessary, and I think Afghanistan was overdone the way we did it. So uh, at that point, uh, P- I, Peter Kuznick is a historian at, at American University. I've known him for 20 years. We combined our forces as a dramatist and as a historian to write this book and make this series. And in those five years, I really did. Edu- I mean, it was like taking going back to school and getting a master's or a Ph.D. in history. For me, I learned a lot. I mean, I, I knew about various events like the Kennedy assassination and Nixon administration, what I'd seen and heard, uh, the Bush administration. But I'm saying putting it all together and looking for a pattern. Where did we become this country? Certainly, it accelerates after World War II. We become a national security state. There's no question. And we, uh, we hyped the fear. We hyped the fear in the people. We, we built up our budgets. And by uh, the time the Soviet Union went away as a so-called threat in 1991, did we stop? Did we change? Did we go back? No. We kept going. By 1992, we were in Iraq. We sent 500,000 men to Saudi Arabia, which was a huge mistake because we trumped up this threat from Hussein as the new Hitler. In the, he invaded Kuwait, and we made out of it like the beginning of World War II. Literally, if you go back to those days in the PR And we sent 500,000 men there. And that, of course, caused a whole dislocation, again, of our economy as well as of the Middle East. So one thing leads to another. And when Al-Qaeda attacks us in 2001, do you remember one of their reasons for attacking us? They stated it very clearly, was our putting troops in the Holy Land, Mecca, in Saudi Arabia. Those 500,000 troops bothered them no end, as well as our relationship with Israel. So, I mean, all these things are, they don't come out of nowhere. They're always like, there's a cause and effect. And that's what we were looking for in our history, looking for patterns. Cause, effect, cause, effect. Why, does he th- why do people do these things?
2: Now, I've read, from what I've read uh, and what I've seen from stuff online, when people sort of challenge you to be the, uh, when they say, oh, you're the conspiracy guy, you're like, no, I'm not. I'm a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. I'm trying to get to the truth and I'm
0: trying to tell a story. Yeah. Well, there's a difference between my movies because my movies I have to dramatize. Of I'm course. Dramatize. But I, I am very faithful to my research. I try to do the best I can. But you make a JFK movie about the assassination, you've got to combine a hell of a lot of material into three hours. Sure. And, as well as combine characters. But when I'm doing a documentary like Untold History of the United States, I'm a documentarian in that regard. I, everything is fact-checked. We did three fact-checks on that. Showtime, CBS Legal, as well as our own fact-check. We had to rewrite so many things because you th- so many things you think are accurate or not, you have to check and double check. So that untold history is documentary, classic documentary. We have opinions in them, but you can see the difference between the opinion and the fact. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we get to the Kennedy assassination, we don't talk about it because it's just... There's so much... uh, I mean, I think I, I, we can talk about that separately, but we can't prove it. Right. And everything has to be proven in a documentary. So we say here, are the we give you all the reasons of what's the difference between Kennedy and Eisenhower and what's the difference between Kennedy and Johnson. And you can, you can figure out the pieces yourself if you've got any brains. There's a huge difference. And when I grew up, they told us, these media, they told us that Johnson was essentially the continuation of Kennedy. That's not true. And that 's what the point we have to make and that 's why we do it these kind of things so we stay out of the assassination, but by the time we get to Dallas, I think you can make up your own mind right about what's about what 's going on so yeah. so see, see the movie and then see the uh, <laughs> see chapter six because it 's a great chapter it 's one of my favorites
2: oh yeah chapter six that 's yeah. the one I watched yeah.
0: the, the blue the the uh, on Sod- blu-ray why do we say JFK to the brink because Alan, uh, John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State in the Eisenhower administration, was a very powerful man. He was almost the, they called him the Jekyll and Hyde. Eisenhower was always the grandfather type, and Dulles was this very, very hardcore Secretary of State. And he believed in rolling back the Soviet Union, rolling back, not just containment. And part of that policy was what he called Brinksmanship, which is his policy which is taking things to the brink. And why? Because we had the nuclear threat. We used to use a nuclear threat five or six times during the Eisenhower administration like a gun to the head. Make them give in. So it was very dangerous what he did because it brought the the world to the brink of destruction by 1962. Literally Dulles is responsible for this behavior that we see in the the, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff and the uh, CIA. And his brother, of course, Alan Dulles, ran the CIA for had carte blanche for some ten years, intervened in every third world country, every third world country. Literally we we became a, an empire, an interventionist empire. We we led coup d'etats in Iran, do you remember, in nineteen fifty four, three, and in Guatemala in fifty four? We we also un- tried to undermine the Indonesian regime in 1956 seven amazing story we denied it but our CIA pilots were shot down there they they were imprisoned it was embarrassing we were involved in Angola against not in Angola but in Congo against Patrice Lumumba who was assassinated by the Belgians but we tried to poison him first I mean we were no good and in Vietnam we backed the French we we paid for eighty five percent of their war and we and we we. Uh, had a lot to do with uh, postponing the elections of 1955, which would have maybe have solved the issue in Vietnam. We did not want Ho Chi Minh to win. We were bad guys all over the world. Now, the Russians did bad things, too, in Hungary and various countries, in Czechoslovakia. But I'm saying during the 50s, if you look at the scorecard and keep track of what's, who's doing what, we come out as the heavies. Do you prefer uh, documentarian or dramatist? I would never do a documentary again. That took me five years. And, <laughs> and uh, it's hard to make, you know, it's hard to make a living doing it. It's, it was a work of love and uh, it made me better. It refreshed me. It gives me more strength. Uh, but I, I really am a, a storyteller. I'd like to go back and do a drama. Yeah.
2: So when, you're, so when you sit down and, you know, when you tackle something like uh, JFK or, or, uh, or Nixon or W or Kovic, like what is it that you, what is it that you want the takeaway to be? Do you want people to kind of make up their own minds? Or I do you? I don't think about that.
0: That's, uh, that's what I, when I go on a show, they say, well, what's your message? You know, like, yeah, yeah, why don't I send you? hold it up on a piece of cardboard? No, I, I'm into it because of the process. I think that when I do a Ron Kovic story, I, I walk in his shoes. Uh, as I walked in the shoes of Nixon, which was an amazing experience because I didn't admire Nixon. I disliked him. But by, by, by a dramatist doesn't take sides. You walk in the shoes of the person. When I would play, why would I make a movie about W. B, Bush, who I think was a moron? I think he was a, a dumb man with a limited vision. I know you just probably disagree with Korea there. But uh, <laughs> I mean, why would I make a movie about somebody I don't admire? Because I'm trying to understand. You understand? I put myself in his shoes. And many people faulted me for making him too sympathetic. If you remember, Josh Brolin was criti- was somewhat criticized for being not being hard enough on Bush. So you can't win. But I, th- that's what a dramatist does. You you live the story you're telling. So sometimes you do a, a person like a Nixon or a Bush. And sometimes you do a, a Kovic or a Lady Hayslip, who was a, a female, Vietnamese female uh, peasant who managed in the heaven and earth to live on both sides of the war. I learned. I learned. I, I learned something about life, a truth. I, my crime movies, uh, Natural Born Killers, U-Turn, and Savages, I, I lumped them as one, although they were at different times in my life, but in a in a certain way, that's my anarchic side. There's something I learned about myself uh, by acting that out. If I hadn't done those three movies, I don't think I would be the same person.
2: Do you think *Natural Born Killers* was prophetic in the sense that it, it almost sort of predicted like social media and the and the the um, uh, and the idea of um, elevating this insane behavior for people to consume
0: like as I remember that the natural born each film has its own origin and. and you, I mean I kept a diary of all these years so I know I'd have to go back and read it but as I remember the National Born Killers came out of a sense of disgust in 1990s early 90s after the JFK thing I'd been so trashed by so much press and so much silliness and tabloid and I felt this this madness coming on American society of television. With uh, the O.J. Simpson trial is a case in point. I mean, it's a murder. It's certainly sensational, but it was so much was made out of it. It distracted society for for uh, people were not paying attention to more important things, and they became enamored of this trial, and it became the news, and it drove like a probably ten billion dollar cycle through television of advertising. You have to realize. How much people invest in them. In the capitalist system believes in sensationalism and violence as, as a means to an end, to get money, to create interest, to spark something. So we made, they made a fortune off O.J. Simpson, as they made off every murder trial at that point. There was a bunch of murder trials. You don't even know a woman cut off her husband's penis. There was all, oh, yeah. they made big things out of everything, and that was front page news. You know, an ice skater pushed another ice skater. You know, it gets silly. And our society got very silly in the 90s. And that's what Natural Born Killers was about. About two freaked out teenagers who have a horrible existence. Their father is abusive, their mother's very passive, and they, 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 they fall in love. They go on a rampage because all they know is violence. But we see a society around them that is even sicker than they are. We see a prison warden, we see a cop, we see a media that's insane. So it was a satire about our society, and it was misunderstood.
2: Do you feel like a lot of your characters are these sort of bigger-than-life characters that are in these, this this world around them that's utterly insane? I mean, even going back to like movies that you wrote, like Scarface or, or Conan. Like, is, is, do you, do you feel like that there? Are, do you see a, a similar pattern in all of these characters and these well, kinds actually, of Scarface?
0: I remember uh, I was my political instincts were not as developed back then because I was still figuring out my way. But uh, I remember Scarface was very much. The idea, although he was a scumbag, he was a gangster, and he was based on the old film, was that he was also an American immigrant who dreamed a big dream, which is the American dream, which is what? Money, power, mm-hmm. and, and, and sex. Those were the three things in his coordinates. And although he, had, he was awful to people, he never killed anybody without reason in the movie. We show that kind of clearly, that everyone he kills is basically a gangster. And then at, later in the movie, when he becomes insane with paranoia, no matter how disfigured he becomes with cocaine usage, he's unable to kill the, the child and the, and the wife of the diplomat he's assigned to kill by the cartel in the South, South America. In other words, he has some resident integrity. Uh, Feeling, And also when when his sister, of course, you know, the whole thing with his sister and his friend is also the part of that resident integrity that he has.
2: Well, then is that then do you as a dramatist? Is that part of your is that part of your goal? Yeah.
0: No matter how bad you are, no matter how awful the situation, there is something human left in in Tony Montana uh, in my mind. Uh, Now, I didn't direct the movie, but that's the way I wrote it. and Conan the Barbarian was changed quite, is altered quite a bit. It did, the script is fascinating, uh, and would have cost a lot more money. And I think it would have ended up as a 12, 12 part series. It would have made the producers a lot more money. But they they went the other way. They short circuited. It ended in two series, in two films. Right.
2: So when you said that, uh, because I I watched an interview online that you did with your son, actually, uh, and you were talking about how uh, JFK, you said after JFK, there was you essentially said there was a shit storm. And then, you know, people said you were crazy or people gave you shit. And so what, what exactly happened? And then when did it happen in that process?
0: Well no I, I, JFK was I mean I, I also was got a lot of praise. It got eight Oscar nominations. well yeah, of course and it won two for, for editing and for cinematography. you know the film was was significant and it led to the uh, JFK Act, which was passed, which allowed for an expansion on the records of the records and an investigation of more records up until 1998. They did a pretty interesting job and it revealed a lot of new stuff. Of course some records are still being held we found that out too but the point was that it did have it did lead to some uh, productive results and it woke people up again to what they felt outrage about that this was something crooked about this murder i still maintain that there is very much so very crooked murder but we can get into that on in another question but my life changed with that movie because i was very hot off of uh, Born on the Fourth of July and Platoon and Wall Street and Doors and in a sense it crossed a line because uh, filmmakers didn't go into these arenas with such detail. We had done a lot of research. We had experts with us, uh, forensic experts, photography uh, photography experts, ballistics experts, I mean we had good people working on the film who had been involved in the JFK uh, critical community for years. It wasn't like we went into this blind, but I didn't know that there was so much that we'd hit such a nerve until the second week of shooting when uh, uh, the Washington Post sent a reporter down to Daily Plaza. We were shooting the assassination, and there was a guy there, and we didn't know who he was. And next thing we know, we pop up in the Sunday pages of the Washington Post, second week, third week of shooting, vi- vivisectiness. With off an old script that he a draft I think we were on our eighth or ninth draft, and he was working off the second draft. So he was pointing up all the things that were, were wrong in the script before the movie had been seen. I think that was really unfair. We called the post, and we got into a war with them, and it was a war all the way through. Uh, it was a war for getting our point of view across, on paper, not just on film. It's a war you end up losing against the mainstream media. Newsweek had a cover before we came out saying, "Don't believe this film." Literally, oh, wow. You know, that kind of war. So it was very frustrating. And uh, obviously, I went on television for almost six months after the film was released to defend my honor and defend the reputation of the film. Like, I, my attitude is, like, I'm not just a filmmaker who's making just another movie. No, this is, this is, I believe this. I believe this happened. And I believe our country was robbed. And I think Kennedy was killed by more than one gunman.
2: And so you feel like at the time it's such unfortunate that there wasn't that you didn't have outlets like the social media outlets today where you could reach out to people directly and go hey here's what I I mean you basically were if you're saying that the press was against you you were having to I didn't use, say all the press
0: but some of the press but Most you were of you, the you, mainstream you were, press yes
2: you were still having to use the mainstream press to get your your yeah. opinion out but it wasn't getting out the film out spoke in the way. for itself
0: that's all i can say the film spoke for itself and many reviewers were kind to it Roger Ebert uh, who was a big reviewer said that there, I don't know all the facts of the case but I know there's something right about it he catches the mood, he catches the atmosphere there's something that's inherently in, in, right about this movie which is as good a compliment as you can get but, but, you know, too many of the critics thought that they were experts on the on the JFK uh, issue. They should not have – I don't think they should have gone there because I think, for example, the New York Times uh, has always been very critical, very critical of any book or commentary or document. They won't even run a review generally of a, of a, of a book that's critical of the Warren Commission. It's a very strange story. It goes on for years. So does the Washington Post. But meanwhile, the New York Times gave us a lousy review, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, So, but people went. It was like platoon. They couldn't be stopped. They were curious because there was heat. There was a heat about the film, okay? So the film spoke for itself, and I still think it does. And I'm very proud of the film. There's nothing wrong in the film. It's got a solid case. The shooting, the evidence, the, the window... The, uh, the Dealey Plaza sequences. The Garrison case, although he had a weak case, we showed that it was a weak case on film. He admitted it on film. So it wasn't like we were building up Garrison to be something he was not. He, had a, he was a brave man because he brought into the light of day the operations of a covert branch of the U.S. government. That's what he was suggesting. And even to this day, you know as well as I do, even with all your media, the Julian Assange's and the Bradley Manning's and the, uh, and the Snowden's, they're still out of luck in our society. They're still the, un, the antiheroes, right? I mean, they haven't improved in our, in our society. These people are – Snowden is stuck in another uh, in country. He's exiled. These people can't do what what Garrison did. Garrison brought the trial, was vilified, marginalized, ridiculed. He went through hell. I knew the man. But uh, Snowden is going through the same thing. But maybe now, because you see Snowden, maybe your generation can understand what Garrison went through. It's very hard to prove these things when the government does not Snowden had the documentation, thank God. But without the documentation, he would have been treated, he would probably have been arrested, and he ran away before he could be arrested. Right.
2: So when you look back and watch JFK, which, by the way, uh, they're releasing in theaters again because it's the 50th anniversary. Um, And I know that uh, I think I have the dates here, but I think on the 17th and the 20th.
0: uh, It's uh, a Sunday showing in in various cities here in the in L.A. It's one week uh, until next Friday. And it's from this week. It's this week. I'm going to do a Tuesday Q&A at the uh, Cinerama Dome. Okay, and uh, in New York, it's in, in, in one theater, In Washington, in Georgetown, one theater, and then it hits on Sundays, two different Sundays, I believe. Eleven, you said seventeenth and twenty-fourth. Yeah, I think the seventeenth and the twentieth. I believe are the there'll days. be in a, a lot of different theaters all around the country, but only on a one-show, two-show basis. It is,
2: when, you, when you look back at the movie, it is like a museum of every actor at the yeah. time.
0: We're bringing out a, a Blu-ray, a new edition, fiftieth anniversary edition, with chapter six in it. With a, with a lot of uh, new documentaries and uh, PT-109, the film about Kennedy, uh, made by Cliff Robertson in 1950s. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that'll come out. It's coming out in uh, November. Uh,
2: it's coming out tomorrow. So by the time this posts, it'll be out.
0: Yeah, it'll already be yeah, out. Coming out tomorrow.
2: Um, what have we learned in the last 50 years? Have we learned anything? Are we closer? Are there things that you thought when you made JFK that, you've, that you learned new information or changed your mind
0: about? We know now, for example, the the, the JFK Act uh, led to the the Assassination Records Review Board, and they took four million document four million pages of documents, four million pages of documents to go through. So there's a lot of detailed stuff that. One thing we know is that the CIA, for example, was very was watching was very intimate with Oswald from '59 to '63. In the Warren Commission, it said the CIA had a routine and sporadic involvement with. With Oswald, but we now know that there's more there, and we know more about the people who were involved with him. Uh, those files, by the way, were not released in the 90s, as, as was requested by the Assassination Records Review Board. They were not released. So there's about 1,100 documents. Uh, Jefferson Morley who used to work for the Post and has now gone rogue, has gone uh, uh, with his own blog, JFK Axe. He has a JFKAxe.org. Uh, it's a very good organization on paper. On, it's a website, rather. Morley has, uh, uh, through the National Archives, has found some of the individuals who he would like to know more about and has asked for it. But he's not going to get it from the CIA. These would involve James Angleton, who was a counter, ter- counter chief of counterintelligence so the CIA. James Angleton, very famous character. Richard Helms was deputy director. He attacked our film. Uh... Uh, George, uh, G- George Giannides, the Miami Bureau Chief, David Phillips, the Mexico City Bureau Chief, very interesting figure comes up again and again uh, E. Howard Hunt on a lower level and uh, David Morales, both of whom late in their lives seem to implicate themselves uh, in the assassination uh, Hunt told his son he was there that day he was involved, I mean there's been a lot of those kind of things, we need to get the files on those people because they're all around the case William Harvey's another one. Uh, Morley's done a good job, but everyone's working on this from different angles. Of course, the big thing is the uh, is the uh, the autopsy. That was the biggest the biggest medical fraud of all. That, the autopsy, the way it worked out. The, the 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 case in our film is pretty much the case. we still it holds up. Kennedy was shot from two sides. It was because you have a shot to the neck from the front, and you have a kill shot frame 313 of the Zapruder film, takes him at the right right temple, blows out the back of his skull. Witnesses all over the place at Parkland and at, at Bethesda see the skull, the cerebellum, comes out. There's hardly any brain left. In the autopsy photos, in the autopsy that's presented, he still has a brain that weighs as much as when he, was, as when he got shot. So it doesn't make any sense what happened. The, the body disappeared for a while. There was a the photographer who was there that day who shot the photos does not recognize the photos that were presented by the autopsy. So we have this kind of weird stuff that happens because the body disappeared for a while. Is there- it went to Washington. The point that you have to keep in mind is back into the left, back into the left. When you're in infantry, you take a shot at somebody. You saw the police chief in Vietnam who shot the guy. Yeah. The guy falls a certain way. You shoot somebody in the head, he goes back into the left. And we showed that in the film. It's, there's a Pruder film that was done that day. Now, you can argue all you want, that you can go to the front, this, that, and you can come up with all the fancy arguments, but a, an infantry soldier will tell you the truth. As you shoot a man, he goes the way of the shot. That's what Kennedy did. He was shot from the front, the first shot in the throat, and the, the fourth or the fifth shot up here. There's a shot in the back that hits him, and a separate shot that hits Connolly. That indicates at least four bullets, not three. Connolly was not hit at the same time as Kennedy from the back. You don't see a reaction in the film from Connolly at the same time as Kennedy. And there's also a shot at the, a missing shot that goes to James Teague, who was hit at the underpass. He had a graze on his cheek. So there's at least five shots, probably six, because some people believe that Connolly was shot twice. There was the magic bullet that the Warren Commission invented. The magic, but the single bullet theory by Arlen Specter. He was an evil fucker. He was a lawyer. At the, he was a lawyer who worked for the uh, Warren Commission, and he guided the witnesses. He guided the witnesses. He guided the autopsy chief. He, awful man. But anyway, he came up with a bullet that goes through two hard bones and creates seven wounds in Kennedy and Connolly. He calls that the the, uh, and then it comes out pristine. They call it the pristine bullet. It's a joke. But that becomes, and they actually went with that. And that's the bit, the weakest thing in the whole Warren Commission is the pristine bullet, the single bullet theory. But on top of that, you have this uh, the Zapruder film that shows you the front, the, the the shot from the front that hits him. So you have two big things staring at you. That's evidence.
2: Is there any part of you that's sort of like
0: <laughs> just so a little, even if you? I don't believe Oswald did it. No, because I there's another story on Oswald. But the the, the thing is that. Even if it was Oswald on the sixth floor window, shooting it with a Mannlicher Carcano, which is the worst weapon in World War II, she could probably tell you that it's a piece of shit weapon. <laughs> and it's a bolt action. It's a bolt action you have to make. Plus, you miss your first shot, and then you hit your other. T- your, 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 your Kennedy's receding from you in a, in a car through a tree. And why don't you take the shot when he's coming towards you? I don't know, but assume that you let him make the curve and you go down away from you. Then you miss the first shot, then you hit him with the last two, all in, within six seconds. It's crazy. That sh- the, the weapon was not even used, and they never made the print contact. He never had a paraffin test. There's no chain of evidence on the weapon itself. Plus, they found other rifles that day, the Mauser. They found other types of shells. It was a botched, botched case. It wasn't that well done.
2: Are you tired of uh, sort
0: of being the go-to guy with this no, stuff? No, I'm not you... the go-to guy. am going to put if you want, If you're serious, I'll get you three or four guys. who are going to sit here and we'll take you through this step by step. Well, I just mean are like professionals.
2: As, a, I'm as an amateur, as a writer director, are you? Is there any party that's like I just want to write about fictional
0: people? Yeah, again. yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, but this pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> you got to understand, they, <laughs> they they treat us like we're stupid. <laughs> The Warren Commission, the arrogance of government power. And they didn't make such a... They weren't that smart. I think they're shocked. Uh, You know, by the way, life goes on, technology goes on. I think we could... uh, Anyway, let's go, on. let's go on.
2: No, 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 no. It's good. I mean, let's listen, this is something that you're passionate about, and it's, and, and, and it's fascinating. You know, unfortunately, I don't have enough information. Like, I'm hearing everything you're saying, and I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, I don't know. Well,
0: just remember, people will argue with you and all this. He was shot from two sides. Remember, that's the most important thing. He was shot from two sides. He was not shot from one side. He was shot from the back and the front. That means there has to be another gunman. That gunman, if you stand in Dili Plaza, has to be a defense. That's the kill shot. You see him coming towards you. It's a beautiful shot. You can easily get him. A good marksman can. Oswald was not a good marksman, but that's. Just remember, shot from two sides and back into and the left, back into the left. Those are your two basic things. And you can't. And we'll go to court on that. We'll fight in a trial on that. We can get our experts from both sides, and I think you'll believe our side when we're when we're done.
2: Well, you also. Uh, uh- you also seem to have a sense of humor about. I mean, I, I remember seeing you and Dave, where this is like the shot. This like the yeah. there's footage of you in the background, and yeah. you can see that he's clearly not the same. Guy. I
0: feel like uh, the guy from Dave sometimes.
2: <laughs> 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 Wasn't he the only guy who was right in the end? Of he this? was right. Yeah, he was right. <laughs> but then you also. You also did, did. You did a series in the early '90s, right? What Was it um, yes. uh, P- Palms. Uh, wow, Palms. Re- yes. Where uh, where they're that's interviewing right. you in the that's background, right. and you're like, you're and very, it's, it's like it's like years in the future. And you're like, so does it? Is it satisfying I, to know that you were right about
0: everything? <laughs> I had gray hair. I'm right about these uh, twelve chapters too. I hope you get our <laughs> history because that's the best history of America, you, modern America, you're going to find in one place. And it's not our work as historians. We build on the shoulders of other people. Cold War revisionists have provided this history. I'm not an original. Researcher, I'm only a dramatist working with a historian who's working on the shoulders of like six or seven major historians from the 1950s and 60s who've done this questioning of our history.
2: Yeah. So, as a dramatist, where is the line between uh, represent, re- representing something as as fact, but then also uh, you know having to put an artistic spin on it? Or, well, that's, or a, that's
0: in the film, not in the documentary. Not in the documentary. No, in the film. No, I would always. Uh, you, you say based on a life or. Uh, Based on, or uh, this is a representation, uh, you're taking many different witnesses, and you're making maybe one or two witnesses for dramatic length. Uh, You're having uh, 17 incidents happen to a person, or 25 incidents, and you make them into five. You know, you have to find a way to make it a story. That transcends you know well every fucking movie now it's just like but no I don't sh- I don't lie if I know something is wrong I won't do it I won't put it in the movie I no won't no definitely it. not lying but some certainly. filmmakers will and they'll say it's a movie well I mean Osama bin Laden story whatever this bin, Laden, bin zero whatever it was zero bin 30 uh, you know <laughs> zero dark 30 <laughs> they would have you believe that the torture led to the torture in some way led to the uh, assass- execution of a the revenge we took on bin laden correct i don't believe that i don't th- i don't think you should have had that in i think torture it, it demeans demeans us as a country and i don't think we used it because i think what we do with terrorists is we find them we find them through informants for the most part intelligence and we ad hoc specific activity probably bin laden would have been found because somebody gave him up because there was a lot of money involved there was a lot of pressure that way if it, generally the gangsters and the terrorists are revealed by other people who work with them that's my. It doesn't come from putting about be- eavesdropping the whole world and trying to find a pin in, the, in a haystack. It doesn't work that way. Do you feel like that because so if you're we you? Allow for torture, we allow for uh, international eavesdropping, global this global architecture. We say we need that to fight terrorists. We're really wrong. We're morally wrong so do you feel like uh, are you the, do, do people just contact
2: you all the time and go hey Oliver Stone I have some weird information about something yes all the time
0: <laughs> as a result I know more than you think <laughs> I get a lot of stuff but some of it is you know the thing is I can't ignore things I mean I try to pay attention it's, it's very hard when you get a lot of stuff but I always try to have it covered or re- listened to. I mean, try to be reasonable, because there is stuff out there in the world that is pretty shocking. So do you feel like someone
2: like Snowden is more patriotic in some cases? I or, do.
0: I think he did it out or of less. conscience. No, I, I believe he's a hero. I've said so politically, uh, publicly. And what was the response? I think there's a, many people agree with me. I did an NSA uh, PSA, anti-NSA PSA with, for the ACLU. And for the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation, I think it's called. Uh, no, uh, we've been on TV. We've stated our views. Uh, I totally, I totally agree with Glenn Greenwald uh, in his view of government and the wrongness of these measures. As I said, you know, putting out a omniscient 1984, all all-seen state is not a solution. It's a terrifying solution. It scares everybody a suspect. You too. You too. We're all suspect. Nobody is innocent in this world now because with this mentality. Bush said it when he—you remember Bush? I don't know if you're young enough or—
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, you mean the first Bush.
0: The, the, the second Bush.
2: The, the W Bush, yeah.
0: Do you remember him when he said, you're either with us or against us? That was terrifying. All of a sudden, he took 2,000 villains, uh, terrorists, and he made them into 60 different countries. And he said, you know, you're all— if you're not with us, you're against us. That scares me when somebody says that because I don't know who's— Really, with the power the United States have technologically to destroy people, to drones, space weaponry, anything that they would deem a terrorist in the future. I mean, you imagine you have a sense of history, right? You know, sure. the people like who formed totalitarian states like Hitler or Franco or Mussolini would declare terrorists people inside their state. Anybody who was opposing to their authoritarianism would be called a terrorist. That's a common it's a common uh, method of operation, MO. So what would you do? So you maybe you because of your underground railroad connections, because you're against the Vietnam or Afghani War, or because you're for uh, for you're you're for Snowden. All of a sudden, you're on their you're on their web. Maybe they're going to declare you a terrorist.
2: Did you ever feel like you were in danger
0: from them? Now, yeah or at any point well I've thought about it and so does everybody everybody who's got any sense would think about using their uh, their iPhone or uh, anything you use I mean you're, you're being tracked all the time if, you, if they want retroactively I'm not saying they're watching me now but if they wanted to go back and check my file and well, let's say another Bush comes into office or we have another terrorist incident where everyone goes crazy again who knows
2: what would you be your solution? What would be your solution? What would be the first thing you could do if if someone said, "Hey, Oliver Stone, take over the government"? What do you do?
0: I would declare Monday a holiday. Okay, that's a good idea. Yeah, I think that you, <laughs> <laughs> you get I a nice three day weekend. You get a nice three day weekend. Every Monday, a holiday, and yep. I say we're going to have a four day work week, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> okay, all right, okay, okay, <laughs> Come on board. For then me. I would repeal the Patriot Act, and I'd repeal, and I and I'd fire the heads of the NSA. Uh, and the cia and i would start over i would start over and i would get into the pentagon that, that'd be da- dangerous because that's a separate government inside our country wow well i don't i mean we're an hour. are we over no we gotta get going to travis you have to yeah. go to Travis smiley um, anyway uh it's very sweet of you to have me oh it was a great you, this is a really this is a really great
1: Pleasure to meet you. this
0: is
2: really fascinating chat Tomorrow. and 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 it is i mean it's you know, your your detail and your knowledge is uh, is definitely intimidating. I'm, most of it, I'm just listening.
0: I thought you were smart. Yeah! <laughs> I thought you read all this stuff. You should watch all 12 chapters. I definitely yeah. will watch all 12. I, I literally just got If you got do, it, I'll so come I'm, back. Yeah, I will. I'll watch Because then we can have, have more chapters. of a discussion, and I'd like Monica to be part of the Korean discussion. <laughs> <laughs> do
2: you have anything to say, Mon?
0: No. She gets embarrassed. I was um, in Korea this summer uh, protesting the island. Uh, they're building another naval base, South Koreans on Jeju Island, which is a beautiful island, they're ruining it. Oh, wow. It's huge. It's, a, it's only 300 miles from Shanghai. It's the anti-China pivot that we're doing. And so you went there to protest? Yeah. Yeah. And the Koreans, I went to Hiroshima Nagasaki, Okinawa. Okinawa is another base full of bases, and it's also got a strange history, World War Two, And uh, Korea has been, a, it's a really one of our most important allies. I armed to the teeth, Korea and Japan are armed to the teeth by us and they're uh, ready for war do you have any opportunities to just have fun and relax Uh, (laughs) I mean I love Korea I love Japan I love those places yeah I do I relax I have fun I have fun I do. What do you? Want? I look like I don't have fun. No, just because you know, because because of the documentary,
2: because the 50th edition. Yeah, it's the too 50th much work Anniversary. Right it just it's like yeah.
0: it's so serious and so serious and like JFK. And, it's and I'm cons- writing something new, so you know. Yeah. I'm writing a movie, by the way, not a not a documentary.
2: Good Fic- fictional movie or or based Dramatic,
0: on. Dramatic, based on. Sorry. Based
2: on. a story. That's all right. That's all right. Well, it's good to see it. All right. Thanks. Guys. And he's uh, at the Oliver Stone on Twitter and uh, the 50th uh, edition of uh, I mean the 50th and anniversary. Facebook too. And Facebook. The the well. Oliver Stone experience,
0: right?
2: Uh, the Oliver Stone experience, is that right? Um, yeah, so the so the new edition, the 50th anniversary JFK edition, is out, which is a gorgeous box set. And then also uh, the Untold History of the United States uh, Showtime. Yeah, do you have a men's room here? Yeah, we do. We do. Enjoy a burrito.
0: Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. <laughs> This episode of
2: the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code NERDIST11. Nerdist and the number 11. Are you tired of dating assholes? Do you want a prince charming? If so, we're filming a reality show. Sign up here. Twelve American women are flown over to the UK for a bachelor-style reality dating show.
1: There are so many questions about a show like this because it's so odd.
2: These women have been told that they were going to be dating the world's most eligible bachelor, Prince Harry.
1: What? Y'all playing with me, right?
2: You can binge The Bachelor of Buckingham Palace exclusively
0: on Wondery+. Join Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.